Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. God does great things in the desert places of the Bible. And God does great things in the desert places of our hearts. And we believe that God wants to do great things in this desert place. And little Afreda, the desert of eastern Washington, of central Washington. You know, we've been talking through this message, uh, through this series of messages that we've been calling Desert Places, how God encountered people in the desert. We talked the first week about Mount, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and how God invited his people into an encounter with his presence at Mount Sinai. We talked last week how God provides in the desert and he protects his people in the desert. And today we're going to talk about how God heals in the desert and how he saves in the desert. Uh, ophidio, ophidiophobia is the term used for extreme fear of what? Does anybody know? Snakes. That's right. Ophidiophobia is the extreme fear of snakes. Anyone here afraid of snakes? You, you and Indiana Jones, both. Don't like snakes. I have a lot of Indiana Jones references throughout my messages. If you go back and listen, I like Indiana Jones. You know, uh, my great-grandma Candy grew up in Georgia, and she was deathly afraid of snakes. And uh, when I was six, I had a fascination for snakes and sharks and alligators, anything that was scary looking, because I was a six-year-old boy. And uh, when you go to the library, you ask for books about sharks and snakes and alligators, and you want to see some scary pictures on, on the books. And so I had this fascination with snakes when I was younger, and I had this giant, no kidding, this giant book like this, with these giant cardboard pages. It was a snake book that, that I got one year. And um, my mom came into my room, and I was looking at it, and Grandma Candy was on her way, and she goes, don't ever show this book to Grandma Candy, or she'll, she'll freak out. You don't want to show this to Grandma Candy. And that's all I needed to know. <laughs> that's all I, I I was like, well, what is going to happen if I show this to Grandma Candy? And... And so I waited till Grandma Candy showed up, and she sits herself on the couch in the living room, and I come running out with my giant book of snakes. And I opened the page to this page of this anaconda, like, coming out, like, with its fangs, like, jaws open, and it's, like, reaching out for the reader. And my Grandma Candy sees this giant snake on the book, and she loses it. She just jumps up. I, I almost killed my Grandma Candy on that day. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. And, and uh, you know, I learned my lesson that not everyone is as fascinated with snakes as my six-year-old self. There are people who are afraid of snakes. Well, y- you've heard of snakes on a plane, perhaps, but today's passage is about snakes in the desert. And uh, in Numbers 21, there's this, there's this um, interesting story. Are you there with me in Numbers 21? We're going to start with verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. I just realized that I have the New Living Translation up there behind me, so that's probably why some of you are kind of confused. They said that we hate this horrible manna. We detest this food that God has given us. Last week, we talked about how God 
provided manna in the wilderness when they were, when they were hungry. And he gave them this miraculous provision of this flaky bread that tasted like honey. It was sweet, and they didn't know what it was, so they called it manna, which means, what is it? That's what, it, that's what manna means. It means, what is it? And there's, there's two acceptable interpretations for this phrase, we hate this horrible manna. The Hebrew root word for horrible in this translation has a variety of meanings, but the two most likely translations are light, as in unfilling. It's not substantial, meaning that the bread was unsatisfying and it wasn't filling. Or uh, that root word also could mean cursed, meaning the people cursed the bread from heaven. And if you remember last week, the bread from heaven was not only God's good provision for his people in the desert, but Jesus declared that he is the bread from heaven. He is God's gift to the earth. He is God's gift to people. It it represents his incarnation. He's the bread from heaven. The people of God right here, when they said that we hate this horrible manna, they're not merely complaining about being hungry. They are cursing the gift of God and calling it unsatisfying and unfulfilling. Think about this in the context of when you see Jesus as the bread of life. They are calling it unsatisfying, unfulfilling. It's not good enough. There's a spiritual death that's happening in the camp of Israel because they're choosing not to trust the Lord any longer. Let's continue reading verse 6. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. You know, it's these kinds of verses in the Old Testament uh, that cause people to wrestle with the goodness of God, with, with, with the loving nature of God. The text says that it was God who sent poisonous snakes among the people. And so the question that many people ask is, why would a loving God do that? To the people he has chosen as his treasured possession. Is this how God treats his family? It's a good question, right? It's a question I think that we've all have asked when we read verses like this. When we read stories of the flood. Stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. Stories like that. But, but I want us this morning to lift our eyes to the overarching story of humanity. It's important to understand this. To, to understand the character of God. From the beginning of creation, we see that God's true intention for his relationship with humanity. In Genesis 1 and 2, God made a perfect world, and he walked in intimacy with Adam in the cool of the day. The word, the name Adam is Hebrew for man. It means man. God walked with man. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. His intention from the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, before there was sin, in a perfect world, was to have intimacy with with humanity, was to have a relationship with his creation. Adam was his friend, and humanity was created in the image of God. And then in Genesis 3, and by the way, the snakes that we see here in Numbers 21 are not depictive. Uh, they, they have nothing to do with the serpent that's in Genesis 3. And so we have to separate that from our minds. It's, 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 it's actually there, it's a separate picture here. Because as we see later on uh, in, in, in Scripture, Jesus himself compares himself to these snakes, which is an interesting thing we're going to get to. But in Genesis 3, we see that God placed two important trees in the garden, didn't he? He placed 
the tree of life in the garden, which was a good tree. You can eat as much of this tree as you want, Jesus said. God, excuse me, God told Adam and Eve, eat as much of this tree as you want. This is a good tree. But he also placed in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life was good, and God encouraged them to eat the fruit. But the other tree was off limits, and God told them that they would die if they ate that fruit. So the question becomes, if God knew that eating of that tree led to eternal death, why did he place it in the garden to begin with? Why didn't he simply remove it? Why didn't he take it out of the garden? God placed the bad tree in the garden because a relationship requires options. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. A relationship requires options. If I was the only man alive on earth and my wife had no other choice but me, it would seem that her love wasn't very genuine because she was kind of forced to choose me. I was, I was all that was left, right? Sometimes it feels that way. I feel like, how did I get so lucky? Was I the last person alive? No, what, what makes a marriage so significant is the fact that my wife could have chosen any man. And she could have chosen any man. Because Have you seen my wife? She's pretty. She could have got any man. But she didn't choose any other man. She chose me out of all her other options. And a marriage stays strong because the two people continue to choose each other every single day. After every fight. After every struggle. I'm hearing amens from husbands and wives. Here we go. After every struggle, we still choose each other in light of all the other options. That's what makes a marriage so significant is that you continue to choose this person despite knowing that you have all, you could do anything, you could leave at any time. Not biblically, right? That's not the right thing to do. But the world would tell you that if you're unhappy, if you're unsatisfied, you're free to go whenever you want. And that is the option that we have today. Is that when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, you can just go. But what makes a strong marriage, what makes a beautiful marriage so amazing is the fact that you choose this relationship every single day despite the fact that you have options. A real relationship, a genuine relationship requires options. Just like in Genesis, Israel had a choice to trust God or curse God, and they chose the latter. And today we're given the choice to trust God or to follow in our own way. But God's judgment is not the result of his desire to see us suffer. The snakes were not a desire to see his people suffer. God's judgment is a natural reflection of his goodness. What does this mean? You cannot be good and be unjust by allowing sin and evil to go unpunished. What judge... That is unjust or unfair. Is he a good judge? No. The fact that God is just. The fact that he, he punishes evil and he punishes wrongdoings. The fact that he does that makes him a good God. Makes him a just God. It's hard for our minds. We, we are in, we, excuse me, we're finite people, aren't we? And we live in a world where we think to ourselves, if I was God, I would do something differently. I would act a little differently. I would treat people a little differently. But the reality is, is we are, we are the creation. And we cannot understand an infinite God's mind. 
We cannot understand an infinite God's holiness, an infinite God's worth. And we try our best. But God is good because he is just and he judges evil. It's what we read about in the Bible. I mentioned earlier that Israel's cursing of God's gift was resulting in the nation's spiritual death. So God, in his kindness, it sounds backwards, God, in his kindness, brought physical death to the camp so that people might repent and save their souls. If God's judgment of snakes hadn't come, then the people would have continued in their rebellion, resulting in the nation's spiritual death. But God stopped evil before it got out of hand. And he caused the nation to repent. And he caused the nation to say, wait a second, we need God. We are acting out of line. We're acting apart from God. We need to reach back out and say we've sinned and turn ourselves back to God. And that was God's kindness. Now, oh, okay, pastor, you're saying that venomous snakes biting people is God's kindness. But if you think in the context of physical death versus eternal death, God is looking at the eternal salvation of his people. He's looking looking at the eternal life of this nation, and he's considering their souls and bringing them back to himself. But the Lord, he, he sends venomous snakes. They're biting the people. The people repent, and the Lord provides an answer for his judgment. So let's keep reading. This story actually ends well. I know it's a bummer up to this point, but it ends well. Here we go, verses four, excuse me, verses, verse 8. Then the Lord told Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to the pole. Then anyone who is bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and would be healed. What was God doing? Asking Moses to make an image of a serpent. Was he asking Moses to make an idol to be worshipped? No, he was not doing that. God was teaching his people a lesson in faith. He was teaching his people a lesson in faith. It seems completely illogical to believe that a person can be healed by simply looking at a bronze serpent up on a pole, doesn't it? It seems completely illogical. It does not make sense. Yet the people repented and trusted God's plan in that moment, and it brought them healing from physical death and salvation from spiritual death. So what's the lesson for today when we read this story? What is it that we are supposed to take away on this side of the cross, having Jesus' death and resurrection in mind What is it that we can take away from this story and apply to our lives today? The first thing is, number one, we have all been bit. We have all been bit. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans also says in 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is has bit us all, and the venom is lethal. We are all on a trajectory. We were all, before Jesus, we were all on a trajectory to spiritual death. We've all been bit. But pastor, you might be asking, how does complaining against the Lord in the desert merit a death sentence? How, how do my mistakes on earth deserve an eternal punishment? 
I'm a good person who's made a few mistakes, but at the end of my life, I think that the good is going to outweigh the bad. A lot of people think like this. In fact, my wife and I, we were on a date night. We had this conversation with a couple at the bowling alley, and I, I started talking to this man about eternal life, and he said, I think when I die, the good is going to outweigh the bad. I'm a good person. I think I'm going to be given a fair shot at heaven. But Isaiah 64, 6, it says this. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The Bible is clear that you, on your best day, the best version of yourself, is still not good enough. It's still not good enough. You've been bit, and you don't have the antidote. You don't have the answer. We think we're good people because we compare ourselves to other people, don't we? As long as there's someone else who you believe is worse than you, you can be doing all right. As long as there's somebody to look to and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. At least I don't look like that. Then you're doing all right. (laughs) But... We were never meant to compare our goodness with the goodness of other people. We were created in God's image. So it's God's goodness that we are measured against, and we simply can't even come close. We can't even attain a fraction of that. It's an impossible task, and thankfully, God knew that. God knew that we wouldn't be able to do it on our own. He knew that sheer willpower was not the answer. And was not good enough. How many of you ever tried to quit an addiction just by sheer willpower? How did that work out for you? Without accountability, without confession, without, without, without asking somebody for help. When you try to battle an addiction, you try to battle sin on your own, it always leads, it always leads to failure. That's right. Come on, Holly. Preach it. God knew that we weren't going to be good enough. He knew that we couldn't attain perfection. So he himself, he decided that the answer was that he himself would be our perfect substitution to receive his wrath, receive his punishment. I want you to hear me today. God has high standards. If you think you're a good enough person to escape the punishment of sin based on your own performance, then you've made yourself a God and a Savior. You've made yourself your God and your Savior. The Bible is the whole truth. It has no deception, no falsehood in it, and it says that you cannot save yourself from the bite of sin. We've all been bitten, and we all need the antidote. Here's the second lesson that we can learn from this. Is Number two, we are saved with an act of faith. This is where the story gets good. This is where we bring hope into the, into the room this morning. But we are saved through an act of faith. As I mentioned earlier, God was teaching his people a lesson about faith. Because it sounds crazy that someone can be physically healed by looking at a bronze image of a snake. It's a simple act of trust. God said it would work. God said to do it if we want to be healed. So I'm doing it. It's a simple act of trust. It's a simple act of obedience, of just looking up at the snake. But it's completely illogical to think that a physical act can be be performed by doing 
just by walking in obedience, by trusting what God says is true. But in this same kind of way, it's the same kind of trust that we place in God when we look to Jesus as the payment for our sins. In John chapter 3, Jesus, he's having this conversation with a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is genuinely curious about how someone can be saved. And in this conversation, Jesus compares himself to the bronze serpent on the pole in the desert. He says this in John 3, starting at verse 13. No one has ever gone from heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. We have God's heart wrong when we read Numbers 21 as a scripture, as a verse about God wanting to punish humanity for complaining. And oftentimes that's the view that we have of our, of our heavenly father. That's the, t- that's, the kind, uh, that's the kind of God that people outside are looking at the church going, how can you serve a God? How can you worship a God who is willing to send people to hell? But it's not God who sends people to hell. We've all been bit. It's the natural consequence of our mistakes, of our sin. And we serve a God who has provided the antidote. He is a savior. He is the one who has done everything possible to make a way for us to be with him, to save us from the bite of sin. So Jesus, he compares himself to the bronze snake, says the son of man must be lifted up. Well, why is this snake made of bronze? What's the significance of bronze? If you remember our series in the tabernacle that we talked about last year, we talked about how Bronze is the biblical symbol for judgment. It's the biblical symbol for God's judgment. The altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle was made of, was overlaid in bronze. And the basin at the temple where people washed themselves, uh, washed their hands, where the priests washed themselves, it was also overlaid with bronze. Jesus was hinting that all of God's judgment and wrath was about to be placed on him on the cross. That, that, That's the significance of bronze, is that just like this bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, Jesus, the Son of Man, says that I have to be crucified, and while I'm up hanging on the cross, God is going to place all of his judgment and all of his wrath. All the punishment for sin and death is going to be laid on a perfect Savior who did nothing wrong. He is saying to Nicodemus that I'm about to take all of God's judgment. I'm about to drink the cup of wrath so that you don't have to. Romans 10.9. It's very clear. The Bible says this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart That you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That sounds crazy, right? For those of us, maybe we've grown, you've grown up in the church. If you've grown up in the church, this doesn't sound crazy. But think think about hearing this for the first time. That by confessing with my mouth and simply believing in my heart, suddenly I've escaped 
the punishment of death forever. That's crazy. Let me tell you, that is crazy. If that's not an act of faith, I don't know what it is. We have a hard time when we're praying for people. We're praying for people. We lay our hands on people. And we're praying that God would heal them of their common cold. Lord, take away this person's cold. We have, <laughs> we, we have more faith that our souls are saved forever than we do about taking away this person's cold, asking God to take away this person's cold. It's a natural, if you've grown up in the church, it's just a natural thing. You, you have the faith. You have the trust. You believe that this is true. And it is true. God's word says it is true. I want to speak to those of you who have grown up in the church for a moment. If you're like me, raise your hand if you've grown up in the church. I've grown up in the church, so I'm speaking to myself here. A lot of us have grown up in the church. I want to speak to, to you particularly. When I, I want to ask you, when was the day that you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? You should be able to think of a particular moment. Maybe if you're like me and you went to youth conferences, you did it every time you went to a youth conference. And so there's multiple moments. Like, I did it at that one. I did it at that one. I just wanted to be sure. I wanted to cross the T's and dot the I's, make sure that this contract was signed. So, you know, I'm going to do it again and again. When was that moment? Many people grow up in the church with Christian parents, but they've never confessed it themselves and made this their own journey and made this faith their own and believed in their heart. That God raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible makes it clear that there is a moment. There is a moment that you confess with your mouth. There is a moment in your spiritual journey when your old self dies. And you're given a new nature. And you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's at the moment of confession. When we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And I believe that you are alive. That God raised you from the dead. Come and be the Savior of my life. In that moment... Your old self dies, and you no longer have the nature of Adam any longer, the nature that desires the things of the world, the nature that desires the cravings of the flesh, your, your personal cravings. That nature dies, and you are given a new nature. The Bible says, behold, all things have been made new, and you're given a new nature. And in that moment, not only do you have a new nature, but you are filled with, with the Holy Spirit. You are actually given the capacity to pursue God. Without being filled with the Spirit, you don't have the capacity to fill God. You might want to be a good person, and you might try your hardest, but it is not enough. You need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our life, and when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, we are filled with the Spirit of God, and it gives us the capacity to pursue God and to walk in the ways of God, to walk in the power of God, to exude the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, I'm forgetting one, self-control. But when you confess with your mouth, and there's that moment you are filled with the Spirit. You're given a new nature. If you cannot think back to that moment, then I would urge you to utter the words as an act of faith and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you this morning. It's a necessary step. Well, pastor, it's just words. God knows my heart, right? If I think it, isn't that good enough? If I'm, Well, the Bible says there is something powerful about confessing it with your mouth. Did you know God created the world with a confession of his mouth? God created the world by saying, let there be light. 
and everything came into existence. There's power by releasing words from your mouth. And when you say, Jesus, you are Lord. And I believe that you are alive and you want to live in me. There's power in that. I I think today God wants to turn some of us from believers into followers. Jesus didn't say, go and make believers of every nation. He didn't say that. Jesus doesn't want believers. He wants disciples. He wants followers of Jesus. He wants people who wake up and say, you have everything, Jesus. All my chips are on the table. There is nothing else that I'm pursuing other than you. It's an all or nothing type of relationship. It's this passionate commitment to Jesus. And to say, Jesus, you have everything in my life. My marriage is going to be founded on you. My parenting is going to be founded on you. My career path is going to be founded on you. Where I decide to move, where I go, I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to follow your leading. My life is, is fully committed to you. Some of us, we've uttered the words. Maybe we've uttered the words. We're believers, but we're not followers. We're not disciples. We're not passionate, abandoned children of God. And God wants disciples. He wants followers. The difference between faith and belief is this. That belief acknowledges something is true. This is the, the, level, of, the level of faith that a demon has. The Bible says that even the demons believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God. Big deal. That that, that belief acknowledges that something is true, but faith knows that it's true, but also entrusts itself to that truth. Faith, a life of faith, actually causes a person to reorient their life around this newfound truth. Now, when you discover that something is true, when you believe it, when you have faith in it, you actually reposition your life to follow that truth, to make that the goal, to make that the priority. Have you reoriented your life yet? Are you living differently now than before you confessed with your mouth? Because your life should look different. Your life should look different. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, our life should look abandoned to him. I have friends in my life. I have family in my life who, who, who say that they're Christians, who say that they follow Jesus, but when I look at their life, you see that there's, there's not an obedience. Their, their life, they don't have a desire to follow Jesus. They don't have a desire to say no to the things that the Bible says are wrong and to, to cut those things out of their life. They, they say, you know what, like there's grace and God's going to forgive me and I'm just going to keep going the way that I'm living. I'm going to keep doing the thing that I'm doing because I, I think what I've done is good enough. I've got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. I said the words, I did, I did the bare minimum, I'm on my way to heaven. Jesus didn't come to make believers, he came to make disciples, to make followers of him. And I think this morning he wants to turn some of us from believers into followers. The last thing is this, others need to know where to look. When we read this story, we, we can see that there's a lesson that, that, that people need to know that there's healing. I find it interesting that even though the people had repented and they'd been forgiven, the snakes were not removed from the camp. 
they were left on the ground. And they weren't kept from biting people. In other words, the effects of sin continue to this day. But God works on those effects by providing a way to be healed. The snakes are still on the ground, church. The snakes are still in the camp. And people are getting bit. And they're dying. And it's our responsibility to tell others where to look for healing. That there's a Savior who took God's wrath. Who took God's judgment. And if you would just have a, have a if you would do an act of faith. If you would step out in faith and, and believe that Jesus died for you. And that this good news is for you. You can be saved. If you had the only cure for someone's terminal illness, would you keep it to yourself? No, you wouldn't. Instead, I think you'd run to their house with a big smile on your face. Somebody is dying. They have no answers. They know that they're dying. It's, it's uncurable. But you show up. You've got a big smile on your face. You say, I have it. I have the answer. I have the only thing that you need to be healed. And it's easy. You would have a smile on your face, wouldn't you? It would be good news. Did you know that the word gospel means good news? It's good news, church. It's the good news of Jesus. But we don't often share our faith with others like it's good news, do we? Some of us treat it as bad news. Oh, no. If I share my faith with this person, they're going to have to make some heavy decisions. And they might get offended. They might get mad at me. And it's going to be awkward when I come to work. It's going to be awkward when I come to a family event. It's going to be awkward. And we treat it as, oh, no, I've got to share this with somebody. I just feel this conviction, and now I've got to share it with somebody. We don't share Jesus with a big smile. We share Jesus with sweat dripping down our faces. God, give me the words to say. I'm going to invite Christina to come up. I want to encourage you today. Here's the promise of God. The promise of God is that the truth will set people free. Period. It's the truth that will set people free. It's not your job to manipulate the correct response from someone. Your job is to share the good news with joy, and the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. To share the good news of Jesus with a smile on your face. And you know the best way to share the good news of Jesus with joy? It's to share the story of how you met Jesus. It's to share your testimony. What God did in your life. How he took you and transformed your life. How he gave you hope. How he gave you purpose. How he gave you peace. How he turned you into a person that was irritated by others and impatient into a person of love and compassion for the world around you. We share the, Jesus, we share the good news of Jesus with joy. That's why Psalm 51 calls it the joy of your salvation. That there's a joy of your salvation. It's good news. And it's something that we should share with people with a smile on our face. This Easter, I want us to share the good news with people. So be bold and invite someone who needs to hear good news. 
Even now, you might have somebody who comes into your mind. Maybe it's a neighbor who lives next to you. Maybe it's somebody you've known for years, somebody you've worked with, and maybe you've felt in the past that you were supposed to say something, but you haven't said anything. I just want to encourage you that, that this is good news. This is something that people need. And it's not your job to manipulate a certain response. It's your job to share it with joy, to share it as good news, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Even if you're just the one who plants the seed, you're the one who deposits the seed, the Holy Spirit will water it. He will water it until it grows. He will make sure that what the work that he begins in somebody comes to completion. But we're called to plant the seed. And maybe you are fortunate enough to harvest the fruit. Maybe you invite somebody and they say, yes, I'm ready. And they come to church and they give their life to Jesus. Or maybe you lead them in a prayer yourself. That would be the greatest thing right there, wouldn't that? Maybe you are fortunate enough to have that experience with somebody. But we're called to share the good news of Jesus with joy. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us today. You know, in a moment, um, after, after church today, um, we are, we're going to be doing this class called Grow Class. It's going to be in the cafe immediately after church. Probably give me like 10 or 15 minutes to get ready, and then we'll meet in the cafe. And Grow Class is for people who, number one, uh, want to know more about our church, who we are, what we believe. And number two, it's for people who are just starting a journey with Jesus. And, uh, and you, you, if you want to learn the ingredients to following Jesus, what the Bible says are the ingredients to following Jesus. Come to Grow Class. If you want to meet me and know a little bit about our church, come to Grow Class. But as we pray this morning, I really feel impressed that God is wanting to take every single one of us to the next level. He wants to upgrade every single one of us. And, he, and there's some of us here who are believers, but we're not followers. We haven't committed everything to him. And there's 2% of our life. We give them 98%, but we hold that 2%. And we say, you can have all that, but you can't have this. You can't have this relationship. You can't have this habit. You can't have this money. Whatever it is, God says, give it to me. Give it all to me. This is an all or nothing relationship. It's good news, church. Because when you give everything to Jesus, he does a abundantly more with your life than you could ever do on your own. For those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, God has given us a mission, a calling, a purpose, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to help carry that out. So Father, we are here today and we offer our lives on the, sacri- on the altar as a sacrifice to you. We say, Jesus, take it all. Take everything that we have. Would you raise your hands to heaven with me, church? Just say this out loud. Take everything I have. I give it all to you. Jesus, I love you. Fill me with your spirit again. And take me to the next level. Amen. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for today for your word. I pray that you would continue to encourage people this week and thank you for for the gift of Easter, for the gift of Palm Sunday. This is the week that we celebrate the, 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 the day that the world changed. The week that the world changed. And we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And the church said,
Amen. We love you, church. We'll see you next week or in grow class in just a few minutes.